Now, this afternoon we have three topics which um, are very relevant. Everything is relevant to D.C., but are particularly relevant to D.C. I showed you the data about uh, gonorrhea in D.C. Uh, Jeannie Marazzo, who's the director of the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of Alabama, and uh, a global authority in STDs, is going to give us an update. And uh, I think that will be, again, particularly relevant to the practices here in D.C. Jeannie? Would you like to come up and be on the panel, Dr. Gulick? Thank you so much, Henry. Um, so, Dr. Sag, are you staying up there? I hope. Okay. Anybody else want to come join the panel as a representative of? I promise it'll be fun. It's all about sex. <laughs> no, no, you already started. So, anyway, um, hi everybody. It's wonderful to be back at this course. I haven't been here in a couple of years and um, excited to give you an update on a very, very hot area, um, as you've heard about. And hopefully, uh, we'll get some, some good discussion um, and, uh, during these cases. This is my uh, disclosure. These are the learning objectives. And we're going to go ahead and start up with the first case. Wait a minute. So there should be a case, right? Am I? I'm supposed to be doing it right? Okay, so we're going to start with a question, and I'm going to ask you to vote on this one. So among men who have sex with men, what percent of gonorrhea or chlamydia infections are missed if only urine is screened? So you send them to the bathroom, you get their urine for chlamydia and gonorrhea, you're not looking anyplace else. Remember, don't ask, don't tell, don't look, don't find. Okay, so what is the percentage of don't find? Let's see, we've got 44 racking it up. I have no music. What about my sex tech, chemsex music? So, Judy, we also want you to know that we're going to evaluate you. If you can't get at least 75 responses, you don't get a good evaluation. Wow, that's rather late in the game to be telling me that, Henry. Okay, so when I, it's coming, come on, keep coming. Now this is going to make me spend all my time waiting for the answers. All right. Well, okay. So thankfully no one said zero, so that's really good. So everybody knows that you need to look. Um, some of you said 14% and many of you said 40% and a minority of you said the majority. Um, Dr. Gulick, what do you think about this? Do you want to comment on this? Sure. I think we miss a lot by just doing the urine alone. I wasn't sure if it was 40 or 70%, mm -hmm. but uh, clearly CDC recommends three-site testing, and uh, there's lots of rectal chlamydia and gonorrhea around. Mm -hmm. Some call it the triple dip uh, testing. Um, anyone else on the panel want to make a comment? I presume you're going to tell us that it also varies by uh, in terms of sexual practices uh, yeah. and risk group? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take a look so at So in other words, there is, all the answers are right depending on what group you're looking at. Uh, I would say zero is probably not right, um, but in, um, in general, let's see what these data say. So um, these are relatively recent data from the National Health Behavioral Surveillance Study, and what this is is uh, they're not gigantic numbers of people, so you can see the numbers tested in each category at the bottom of the screen there, um, but these were people who were tested at all 
sites. Okay, so when we talk about extragenital, this is the first thing I will mention. Um, the the genital part is either the urethra or the cervix. The extragenital parts are the rectal um, site and the pharyngeal site. It's sort of weird because some people might think the rectum actually falls under the genital uh, sites, but we consider that technically an extragenital site. Okay, so these are the data for chlamydia and gonorrhea at the rectum and the pharynx, broken down by the HIV infection status of these people who were tested. And these are fairly representative data, albeit small numbers, and you can see the prevalence of rectal chlamydia in this group uh, was about 9%, and I should mention that these were people who were screened, so these are all asymptomatic um, infections. So 9% rectal CT in HIV-infected people, about 7% in those without HIV, and about 8% for rectal gonorrhea. Pharyngeal gonorrhea, probably a little bit less, about 4 to 5%. And then um, chlamydia uh, is there, I'm sorry, that should actually show up, uh, that blue on the right-hand side, is the prevalence of, um, of chlamydial infection. How many people do targeted testing for chlamydia in the pharynx? Anybody want to sort of say anything about that? Should we be doing that, our panel? Anybody want to comment on the panel? Why would we even have data on it? Does it matter? Who cares? The, uh my understanding is the accuracy is really uh, a part of the issue, right? So uh, whether it's uh, going to get confused with other uh, possibilities, but I think we should be uh, leaning or going in that direction because uh, we're going to miss uh, a number of cases if we don't. Yeah, great. So some great thoughts. Actually, uh, the reason we get chlamydia results at the pharynx is not because we order it, because it's not recommended, because what it probably represents is recent deposition of the organism from recent oral sex. There's no sustained reservoir of epithelial cells that will really allow establishment of chlamydia trachomatis in the pharynx. And even if there was, we have no idea what it would actually do immunologically. So remember, to screen for something to be cost-effective in screening, you need to have a common condition that you can detect and intervene on to prevent something in the future, right? So chlamydia really doesn't fulfill any of those in the throat. Fulfills it in the cervix because it's associated with reproductive tract um, outcomes in women. So. But the reason it's there is because when you order a pharyngeal gonorrhea test, what are you getting? You're getting generally the nucleic acid amplification test that gives you both, and they can't suppress the chlamydia result. So if it comes back positive, they have to tell you that result, and then you have to treat it because the test is actually very, very specific, so over 99.9% .9 specific. So you're not going to get a false positive test for the most part. So a little bit of a digression, but uh, be aware that it's not recommended to order pharyngeal chlamydia testing, whatever the sexual history is in these groups. So the point I want to take away from this slide is that these are common asymptomatic infections in these populations, and they seem to be, or in this population, and they generally are more common in people with HIV, and we'll come back to that if we have time. I just want to point out a very interesting recent um, paper that even those who don't really uh, think STIs are that important um, might want to take a look at. It's a really nice modeling paper from the CDC and Emory group uh, looking at, in the current era, 
what proportion of new HIV infections in men who have sex with men in the United States are probably directly attributable to gonorrhea and chlamydia, including extragenital sites. And they came up with a population attributable risk of about 10%, so that's one in 10. That means if we could get rid of these infections, we might actually reduce uh, the incidence by about 10%. So pretty, pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, contribution there. Okay, let's get to the question that I asked you before. So this is the um, data that we use to estimate the correct answer, which is actually 70 to 90% of infections. So those of you who guessed the highest number um, actually are correct. Um, these are data from the STD surveillance network in over 21,000 people um, who uh, show you positive pharyngeal gonorrhea, positive rectal gonorrhea, and the same for chlamydia with the proportion that have a concurrent negative urine test. And the bottom line is that the number of people with a negative urine test is about 72 to 88 percent. So you'll miss between 70 to 90 percent of infections in this group uh, if you only screen with urine. And of course, as was already pointed by, out by Henry, um, this has very much to do with where people are being exposed. I always like to show this slide um, because maybe you are uncomfortable or you don't really like talking about sex with your patients, and if that's the case, you're probably in the wrong business. Um, certainly shouldn't be providing HIV care um, if you don't are not capable of taking a comfortable, thorough sexual history. Any of the panelists want to tell me how they initiate a discussion about sex and safe sex with their patients? I always start with who lives at home with you. <laughs> I think that was supposed to be a joke, but I'm no. not really sure. <laughs> no, just, uh, my, my three dogs. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's certain questions that might lead from. Okay, that's an interesting approach. Other other thoughts? I usually start. Are you currently sexually active? Are you having? Do you have a partner? Do you have a regular partner? Um, and just kind of go from there. Okay. Okay. Um, anybody in the audience want to volunteer how they start these conversations? I can't believe you're feeling shy. Yes, right here in the front. If you shout it out, I'll say it again. Great. Okay. So a sort of a show and tell to get them to open up and, and be clear that you are comfortable talking about those things. We have another one back there. Do you have sex with women, men, or both? That's a pretty common closed-ended question way to do it, and it's a good one because it signals that you're uh, clued into the possibility that you're not making any assumptions, right? Because that's really what it's about. One of my favorite things is to say, tell me about your sex life. So, or I say, what's going on with you sexually? Um, because it, it sort of just is an open-ended way to make them feel comfortable, I hope, uh, about saying, you know, well, as a matter of fact, blah, 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 blah. So I don't know if that works, but I think it's, it's just a couple of things we've said. Okay, so let's keep going. Um, and um, Laura Cheever's here, so I just want to point out that um, these are data, I'm not sure are they public yet, am I allowed to show these? Okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> basically, I can see, I can show it? Okay, they have been shown before, that's what I thought. 
Um, but these are data that haven't been published yet, but have been presented. And um, what I want to point out is that the Ryan White program is actually among the best performers for SGI screening. And I think it's a real testament to Laura's leadership um, in, in paying attention uh, to this, but also to those of you who provide care um, at Ryan White Clinic. So these are just some really nice data. Not perfect, it's not perfect, but testing in the past 12 months um, at these Ryan White facilities actually is pretty good. There's work to do, uh, and you'll have these slides in your syllabus, so in the interest of getting through cases, I don't want to go into too much detail, but just FYI. The other thing is I want to point out um, that we've had an interest in trying to get providers to do extragenital screening, and frankly, um, despite a lot of work trying to figure out why providers don't want to do it, is it time, is it squeamishness, they don't want to do a general exam, <laughs> is it patients, I've kind of given up. Um, and I think that putting the um, kind of testing preference in the patient's hands is probably the way to go. It's great if you do these things and you do test, but many people just don't. So if you want to set up a place that people can screen themselves, we have some really great tools. These are um, uh, posters that we developed at the University of Washington and people have been using these all over. We actually have a dedicated bathroom um, at, uh, at our clinic in Seattle and people can just come up. They don't have to have an appointment. They can just walk in. They can tell the front desk staff they want to screen for STDs. They go in there and they get their kit and do it. Are you guys doing that at all in uh, New York trip or what are you for self-testing? Do you have the opportunity to do that? Uh I think we're going in that direction. We we recently, our nurses stepped up in the clinic and decided that they were going to do, gonna do it routinely, okay. which okay. was a big help to the physicians. Yeah, good. Okay, thanks. All right. Well, let's. Um, and patients really like it, so that's that's the bottom line, um, and it gives them some control as well. Okay. Well, let's go on to another case, and this is uh, one of Dr. Uh, Arini's favorite diseases, as I just heard. So this is a 20-year-old man who's referred by a partner, quote-unquote, who had syphilis. He considers himself healthy. He doesn't have any symptoms. He's had two episodes of rectal gonorrhea in the last year. He sometimes usual, uses meth on the weekends. He's had six partners in the last three months. Uh, he's versatile, meaning he performs receptive and insertive anal and oral sex. And his last unprotected sex was a mere 12 hours ago. Um, he has no information on this recent partner's health. In fact, he met him um, through an app, um, and he doesn't really remember uh, him very well. But he doesn't remember him being obviously diseased, as they always say. But they looked healthy. Um, he's otherwise healthy. He's not taking any medications. Uh, he had a rapid HIV antibody test that was negative today, okay? On exam, he really don't see anything, and you do actually a do, you do, do a genital exam. You order syphilis serology, and you're getting, you're using the reversed uh, sequence serology, which we can talk about if we have time. That's the EIA with reflexive quantitative RPR, if that's positive. You go ahead and screen at all sites, given his history. Um, and the question is, what do you do now, okay? So do you want to base, and now we're talking, thank you, Scott. Um, do you want to base future treatment on results of screening tests? So you ordered all these tests, so you're just going to wait. Are you going to treat him now with a single injection of benzene penicillin, um, 2.4 times 10 to the 6 million units, I am. Um, are you going to do that, but then schedule him for two more treatments? So you're going to give him three weekly injections. 
Or are you going to give him doxycycline to give to his most recent sex partner? Turn it up, turn it up. I want to see the panelists dancing. That's, that's how I know that we're really going to have some good answers. I'm just All right, so um, can, can we, okay, I was going to ask the panelists for their input before looking at this, but that's okay. All right, so a third of you don't want to do anything. Dr. Masur, what do you think about not doing anything here? Uh, remind me again, did his uh, syphilis contact with a known contact or he didn't He had know? a call from a partner who said the health department told me I should contact you because I'm getting treated for syphilis and they told me to let you know. That That's patient, it. then he as a contact uh, uh, should get treated for syphilis. Okay, so, uh, so Henry's stating a basic tenet of public health, which is that partners of people with infectious STDs should be presumptively treated. So you are wrong if you're in the 34%. And if that's the only thing you take away from this discussion, then my job is done here. And it was really worth getting up here. So contacts of chlamydia, syphilis, gonorrhea, trichomoniasis, okay? And you can look it up in the treatment guidelines that they have very specific discussions of the periods uh, of, of exposure. So it's generally 60 days oh, or the more recent person. Okay, so he should absolutely be treated. So those of you who chose the next two are correct. Now, what about this issue of a single versus three injection? So he can't stage him. You don't know what he is right now, right? He's just a contact. But anybody want to comment on whether we should, what is the treatment for a contact, and would you extend it in this case? Anybody want to comment on that? Well, the, the treatment with three doses is for latent um, right. sort of long-term syphilis, and this is an acute exposure so I don't see there's a strong reason to go to the three weekly yep. in, unless there's some other information you have. You're absolutely right. So it would be a single dose. The argument sometimes people make is that if the patient had HIV infection then it might be better to give him three weekly injections even if it's early syphilis. So remember treatment of a contact or early syphilis including primary, secondary, or early latent meaning in the last year is a single dose of benzathine penicillin including if you're HIV infected. Um, people in HIV settings, care settings, have occasionally made the argument that you should give more just to be on the safe side. There's actually a clinical trial right now being done um, in our clinic and others that Ned Hook is leading comparing this approach, mostly I think to try to get people reassured that the single dose is probably going to be equivalent, but we don't know. Do you, do you let me ask you one question. Of course. If, if this patient had, ne had not been tested for syphilis in the past, you want, you're concerned about the recent contact, but actually you presumably don't know if he had late latent syphilis because he had seroconverted three years ago or five years ago. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle that when you have yeah. a lack of information? When, so it's late latent or unknown duration. So if it's unknown duration, you treat for the three weeks. So absolutely, that's, and that's often the case. I mean, in this case, though, you say he's a recent contact, you get one, 
But do you really know that he doesn't have late latent from right. some prior? So if he came back, so you're going to start today and give him, treat him today, and then you're going to get his serology. Let's say his serology is positive and he says, oh, well, I've never been tested before. I have no idea. What are you talking about? I would treat him for unknown duration and I would give him three. It's a great question. Remember that there are great databases out there. Um, public health, syphilis is sort of the original public health, uh, one of the original, in addition to tuberculosis, sort of public health database um, diseases. So you can actually call the health department and they often will have prior testing results for patients. Uh, so you can always do that and that can be incredibly helpful. Tripp, you wanted to say something? No, I wanted to ask you a question. Have there been treatment failures from single injection? of benzathine penicillin in HIV-infected people? Um, it's a great question. I, the answer is yes. Um, and there have been treatment failures even in people without HIV. So if you see people who come in and are treated for early syphilis, you'll see people who have relapse or recurrence in the absence of um, probable reinfection. It's not common, certainly less than 5%, but I think it does happen. And is it more common with HIV infection than not? I don't think we know. No good population-based data. Thank you. Okay, excellent discussion. Um, so just a reminder, here you go. Uh, we still, you know, only have really uh, good data for penicillin therapy, um, and the treatment of choice in this situation is a single injection. Um, there is no benefit, as far as we know, of additional therapy, as we mentioned, but there is this clinical trial, and there's the uh, clinical trials number uh, right there that's being looked at right now. What if you have somebody who's truly penicillin allergic um, in this situation? You can use doxycycline as an alternative, a uh, single uh, dose twice a day uh, for 14 days. And you can also use ceftriaxone, although I don't know why you would want to use it because it's a parenteral agent and you've give, got to give it daily for 10 to 14 days. Uh, don't use a macrolide. Azithromycin actually um, causes mutations in this pathogen, and uh, it was hoped that it would actually help with incubating syphilis, but that has not been borne out. Okay, and just some data for you on sex partners. So it's within 90 days before the diagnosis. You want to try to treat all partners. Now, how possible is that in the current era of syphilis? It's not very easy. And actually, if you look at data from the San Francisco Department of Health, um, they've looked at how much their disease investigator team is spending time on syphilis, and the rates of syphilis have greatly exceeded their ability to do this. So it's gonna, we're going to talk a little bit about the syphilis crisis, but that's really a big issue. Um, what about expedited partner management? So let me ask you this, uh, Trip. Are you using this in your clinic, um, and what what is um, your understanding of how useful it is in this population? So we do do it uh, for chlamydia or gonorrhea. Okay. Regardless of your patient population, so also for men who have sex with men? Yes. So everybody know what this is. So expedited partner treatment is basically trying to treat the partner or treating the partner without ever seeing that partner, okay? So you basically see someone who has chlamydia or gonorrhea and you say, how many partners do you have? How many doses do you need me to give you to give to your partner? Or can I call the prescription in uh, to, uh, to, for your partner to pick it up? It's now um, explicitly legal pretty much in most of the U.S., except for the states listed there. It's prohibited just in Kentucky and South Carolina. 
um, but otherwise is explicitly legal except for the states there where it's not in orange where it's sort of potentially allowable but not explicitly permitted and not explicitly prohibited. Uh, the reason I asked Tripp about what's done here at their clinic is that the CDC actually explicitly says we shouldn't really be doing this for men who have sex with men. And the concern has been that you're missing the opportunity to detect pharyngeal gonorrhea, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is not treated with oral agents, right? And also incident HIV or undetected HIV. Um, what do you guys think about that? Is that an outmoded, does that, should that be re-examined as a policy? Anybody wanna comment? Sounds like it's a risk-benefit thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we encourage the partner to come in, um, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't want someone not to get treated for theoretical reasons, mm -hmm. I yeah. think. How many people would routinely do it if they could and give expedited partner therapy? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's personally outmoded, and it's a little bit draconian and a little bit too perfect world uh, for me. So, okay. Let's ask a good question or a fun question. So, so you have your patient. He's obviously uh, needs to go on PrEP. We didn't really talk about that. He's a perfect candidate for PrEP because we're not talking about PrEP today. But in addition to that, how many people would give him, given the fact that he's had two episodes of rectal gonorrhea in the last year um, and he's just been exposed to syphilis, how many people would offer him doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis for STIs? The answers are yes, no, and I have no idea. That sounds crazy for more reasons than I have time to discuss. Full is locked. So 24% of you would, 63% would not, and some of you don't know about it. Well, the last group we can address because we can tell you about that. I'm interested in the panelists' opinions about this, and I'm gonna have all of you commit to an answer. Mm. Well, all right, I'll, there's, there are data that are emerging out of France um, where it actually was effective at preventing infections. The concern is resistance and um, not just for STI resistance, but it could be breeding other forms of resistance. So I think it's a real risk benefit equation sort of thing. Personally, I would lean against it, um, mostly because um, I'm, I'm concerned about uh, the resistance. And I also wonder uh, what it does in terms of preventing syphilis um, whether it interferes with manifestations, that I don't know the answer to that. But I would lean against it um, simply because these other things, are, once they pop up, they're easier to treat. On the other hand, we have exploding epidemics, but I would lean no. Yeah, I'm leaning no as well. Um, I thought the data from the French study were intriguing, so they saw decreases in both gonorrhea and syphilis. Um, sorry chlamydia and syphilis, but not gonorrhea. That was an important point. Um, and they noted that doxy's been used for years in acne, for example, so you can take prolonged amounts of it. It's well tolerated except for the GI and the sun exposure. But my biggest concern is resistance as well. Do we really want to breed resistance to doxycycline out there? Dr. Masur and Dr. Soretti. I, I mean, I, I would 
echo that. I mean, I think that uh, doxycycline is a great drug for many things. We like to keep it that way. <laughs> and I think opening the door for post-exposure prophylaxis, one could run for that with uh, a lot of exposures during the year. So I wouldn't be enthusiastic. Okay. But we're here to learn what you have to say. <laughs> Jeannie, you meant pre-exposure prophylaxis here, right? Not post-exposure. It's post-exposure. Or are you hedging your well, bet? No, it's post-exposure. We'll talk about it in a moment. Post-exposure, okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I always But that's say, why we're here to learn. So, I, I always say that I would use any excuse to give doxycycline to my patients for two weeks. <laughs> why? Uh, why? Yeah. Because I'm sure a lot of people have chlamydia that are undiagnosed. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, are you concerned about Lyme disease? I hope that too. I mean, so that's uh, no, good. but so, but in reality, if I just tested someone and screened them, I could wait a day. Okay. So it's funny that you say that about Lyme disease because when I uh, I did this in front of Paul Sachs, I think who many of you know um, uh, is a, does a great uh, blog and ID. He said, um, you know you have no idea how much doxy we use in the summer in New England. This is nothing compared to what they would be using for uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. I'm not so sure that's true. But, um, but anyway, okay, so let's talk about this. And I, and I think it's really interesting that one in four of you are interested in doing this. And I will tell you, people are already doing this and patients are asking for it. So here are the data. Um, so you already heard this morning Dr. Sags. Um, panel presentation about the EPRGAY result and the ANRS uh, EPRGAY trial which did look at uh, perisexual PrEP and PEP with, uh, with tenofovir Truvada for, for HIV prevention. What they saw in that study, of course, was astronomical uh, rates of STI acquisition, even in the face of superb HIV prevention, right? So to me, these studies are a testament to how effective tenofovir-based PrEP is. When you're getting rates of rectal chlamydia and gonorrhea like this, you're presumably creating a very inflammatory environment in the rectum, and yet you're not getting infected with HIV. So it gives me a lot of confidence in tenofovir. Um, so they are so they were so blown away by these STI results, they decided to look at something different. And what they did was to randomize men who had been in the trial to continue on to either no intervention or to use on-demand post-exposure sexual post-exposure doxycycline in a single dose, 200 milligrams. They asked men to take it within 24 hours after sex, ideally, or up to 72 hours. And pretty much you can see here how, how this went. So you got three graphs there. The first one is the time to first chlamydia. The second is time to first syphilis. And the third is time to first gonorrhea. And you can see that in the blue line, um, in the men who did not use any PEP, the rates of acquisition of chlamydia over eight months now was about 23%. So one in four men got chlamydia. Um, when you took post-exposure doxy, you reduced that by about 70%. So you actually got down quite a bit. If you look at the time to first syphilis, and this is measured serologically, um, there were lower rates overall of acquisition, so about 10% of men got syphilis, and the use of doxypep in this setting, again, speaking to doxy's use as an alternative treatment, right, for syphilis, uh, cut that down by 70%. So it worked really well for both of those infections. The problem was gonorrhea, and this is not surprising given our resistance profiles of gonorrhea. We used to be able to use tetracycline to treat gonorrhea. We can't anymore. We haven't been able to for a really long time. So it had absolutely no effect. 
Does this change the panel's uh, opinions at all, or are you still thinking this is not a good idea, given these results? There was no assessment of resistance on this study, Excellent right? question. We have not seen the assessment of resistance. We were hoping to see it at CROI, but it has not been done yet, and I think that would be really important. So here's the arguments that I would make for and against, and I uh, really should acknowledge Khalil Ghanem, uh, who uh, uh, had this slide originally, and I've adapted. I think the pros are that it clearly works for syphilis and, and chlamydia, right? We know it's a pretty safe drug. We do use it chronically, as Dr. Sag pointed out. It's easy to administer. We got nothing otherwise. I mean, right? We're not going to be winning this battle anytime soon. We aren't going to get a syphilis vaccine or a chlamydia vaccine in the next five years, as much as I would like to say we are. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of interest among this, not just among providers who are really struggling with this repeated syphilis. I mean, as, as Laura told me before, you can't even sometimes get enough time in between episodes of syphilis to see if people will respond serologically to the treatment for the first episode. So it's really challenging. Um, and men are already, uh, I think, requesting this. I think the costs, we don't have a lot of data. This is really it. Um, it's only eight months. Um, there are some costs that are associated with it. Um, you know, doxycycline's not totally benign. Has anybody experienced the side effect of doxy? There is esophageal ulceration that can occur. I had a friend who actually had that. Photosensitivity is not uh, trivial. Um, and I think there are reproductive concerns in women, right? You don't want to probably be taking it during the very early stages of pregnancy, given potential effects um, on teeth, largely. Although. There are some people who say that's been overblown, and in fact, there are right now some clinical trials uh, being planned in young women in South Africa. Um, so I, I, I think it's worth um, staying tuned for this. And then the resistance, I think, is the really big question. On the other hand, some people say we've already blown doxycycline for gonorrhea. Who cares? Henry's looking very upset at that, at that cavalier attitude. <laughs> I know, as an ID physician, it's very hard for me to buy that, but okay. Um, the, um, so the only other thing I'll say is that there, there are, um, people didn't mention this, but there are concerns about long-term effects on our gastrointestinal microbiome with chronic antibiotic use. Um, and there is one study that looked at treatment of Q fever endocarditis with doxycycline over the course of like a really long time and showed that people got weight gain so I think if we put that out there, then no one will want this um, at all, especially if they're taking an integrase inhibitor. So how do you answer the question right now? How do I answer the question right now? Um, I, I would not do it as um, routine policy if I had someone who I really could not work with to try to figure out how to, I mean, really, the question is, do you want to give somebody a pill to address what is fundamentally a sexual network and behavioral issue. And that is a discussion, I think, for uh, a much larger um, um, philosophical sort of time. But I would not. just going to give him PrEP, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So isn't that the same? It, it is, this, is it the same as PrEP? Is it the same as PrEP? So then the question becomes cost-benefit. What is the discussion with PrEP, right? Um, it's HIV acquisition versus I'm just saying this because this is what people say, a little gonorrhea in the rectum. Someone did say that to me, someone in a public health leadership role. I will not, it wasn't Laura Cheever, but it was, uh, it, it, somebody did say that. So I agree. I mean, there are different standards, very different standards. 
So this could be a great debate, and it probably will be at, at some of our future, future discussions. Okay, so just be aware it's out there. If your patients wanna ask for it, you know, uh, be aware. Um, it is certainly not approved for that indication yet. All right, let's do another case. So this is a 34-year-old man. Um, he is HIV infected, a CD4 uh, count is 200. Um, he um, is not uh, taking antiretroviral therapy right now. He's having a little bit of a chaotic period in his life, and his viral load um, is approximately 25,000. Um, he comes in because he has rectal discharge, bleeding, and pain that first occurred two months previously, and at that time he was also off antiretroviral therapy. He was basically treated presumptively for proctitis at that time, syndromically for proctitis, and that included treatment for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and he was also treated presumptively for syphilis for reasons that I, um, I'm not really sure about. Um, he came back um, in a couple of months because his symptoms never really got better. In fact, they've recurred, and he now has severe pelvic pain radiating to his back. Uh, he says that he's monogamous with a male partner, and he does have a family history of Crohn's disease and colon cancer. And this is what um, he is looking like at uh, his scope. And in fact, he is referred at this point to a uh, gastroenterologist for visualization of what's going on. This is what his colonoscopy looks like. He's got rectal ulcers with inflammation, friable mucosa. He doesn't have any frank abscesses, but lots of blood. Um, he gets a CT scan, and that is showing you here a very thickened colonic mucosa, um, as you can see there with the red, um, the red um, uh, arrow. So the question is, what would you do now? And remember, people present with STIs syndromically, so don't assume everybody in these talks, this talk has STIs, but just think about it. Uh, would you actually treat him for inflammatory bowel disease, given that he has been treated presumptively for gonorrhea and chlamydia? Would you retreat him for gonorrhea, assuming that he has a resistant strain? not necessarily a fluoroquinolone resistant strain, let's just say a resistant strain, uh, would you obtain diagnostic tests for chlamydia and start doxycycline therapy again, or would you treat empirically for something he wasn't treated before that could look like this, namely genital herpes? So, let's go ahead. Oh, it's making me feel so nostalgic for the 80s. <laughs> 80s? 90s? 80s. Okay. All right, let's see what people want to do. Okay, so most people know probably what this is. You want to get diagnostic tests for chlamydia from the rectal mucosa. Let me ask the panelists, have you seen a case of this? Yeah, I think this also is like, it falls in the rubric of the most common diagnosis that we see in medicine, which is HIBGIA, H-I-B-G-I-A, had it before, got it again. So it's in this case, he had it before and he never quite got rid of it. And think about Hibgia, you see it all the time, right? Um, Especially in STIs. So I think that I agree with the majority. Irene. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree. We've seen it a couple of times. It's, um, it was widely reported a while ago, actually, a few years ago, and then it's kind of, it's off the radar now, I think, a little bit. So it's always good to educate the fellows about it. And there's clearly also a wide differential of bacteria, viruses, uh, parasitic diseases. So uh, uh, I guess one has to look for all those things, but I guess you're headed in one direction. Yeah. 
but I, I would definitely get a PCR for herpes too. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, that's part of why I wanted to show it. I think herpes is um, sort of under, uh, sometimes underappreciated as a cause of severe proctitis. Part of the reason I think we don't see it in HIV is you usually see it more in primary herpes infections, and I think many of our patients in the HIV, you look at seroprevalence for HSV2 in HIV care, it's pretty much around 75 to 80 percent. So you're not seeing new primary infections, and I think that's part of it. Do you want to say something, Trip? No, I was just going to say we've seen a bunch of cases as well, and straining or uh, tenesmus, tenesmus or mm -hmm. is the symptom that sometimes jumps out to remind yeah. you that this Great is point. chlamydia LGV. So just a couple of comments, and the reason I wanted to mention it, and this is what happened with him, he had a positive chlamydia trachomatis test by nucleic acid amplification. Um, and uh, a biopsy that showed uh, essentially a lot of granulation tissue um, really was negative for special stains. His urine was negative, just coming back again. Remember, you can't use urine to make the diagnosis of rectal infections generally unless they truly are co-infected at the urethra. And this was sent for genotyping to CDC. So one challenge with this is if you see a patient like this and you get the chlamydia NAT, the NAT is not going to be able to tell you whether you have LGV or not. Um, you only uh, can do that by sending it for specialty genotyping or for culture, and then if, if you have a place that does chlamydia culture, but that's not really very common. So Will Geisler does it at our, at our place. Um, but so just, just be aware of that. You really just have to treat them, um, and the treatment is three weeks of doxycycline as opposed to a single week of doxycycline. So you have to have a good uh, index of suspicion. This is caused by very specific serovars of chlamydia, not the ones that cause your garden variety general infection, not the one that causes trachoma, uh, which is blinding trachoma. Um, and so just be aware that if people have a history of receptive anal sex, whether they're men or women, um, you should be thinking about testing uh, with rectal nucleic acid amplification tests. Um, we haven't really seen this in women very much at all, but I think it's always a, a good thing to think about. Um, it really looks like C. diff when you look on the uh, colonoscopy. That's exactly what it looks like. Um, the one thing I would mention is that um, Irene's right. This was reported around 2000. There were sort of this recognition of increased outbreaks, and then it did kind of go away. But just last year, MMWR, there was a report of a cluster of cases in Michigan, um, and people have been calling me and telling me that they're seeing more of this. So I think that this is, again, maybe just one of those infections that we're seeing more of as our chlamydia rates um, increase in this population. There was a nice um, abstract at Croy that looked at a comparison of azithro versus doxy um, because of the three weeks of doxy, and they showed that giving azithro one gram once a week for three weeks um, was as effective as giving doxy. So that's really a, a nice thing to know. One thing that I got a question on and somebody asked me uh, before is, is azithro as effective as doxy for treating rectal chlamydia infections? There's actually a randomized control trial going on about that right now because there have been a lot of anecdotal treatment failures of single dose azithro uh, for treating rectal uh, chlamydia. So my own preference is to use doxycycline if, if that's available. I don't know, Tripp, has that been come up at all in your... No, I, w I hadn't seen that Croy data, so I'm yeah. glad that you shared that with us. <laughs> I, I was going to mention we saw a case that went to GI, and our gastroenterologist colleagues are not aware of chlamydia LGV. This guy got scoped and diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease because they look so similar. 
yeah. um, eventually found his way to us and we gave him doxycycline and he got better. Yeah, this is a very sensitized audience. I think you probably are thinking about this, but be aware you might see this coming to you from the GI folks. So thank you for that trip. That's a really good point. Okay. All right, let's do something a little bit different. So remember, um, keep your differential broad and your mind open. Um, this is a 16-year-old uh, young woman, previously healthy. She came to the dermatologist. She's had a facial rash for the past two months, started on her arm, and spread to her axilla, her chest, and her face. She was seen by her primary care provider. Uh, they saw her about a month ago, and they prescribed topical steroids with no improvement. The rash was not itchy, there was no redness, there was no pain. She denied any systemic symptoms, no fever, no URI, no headache, malaise, anorexia, sore throat, myalgias, weight loss, lymphadenopathy, really felt very well. Um, social history, she had been recently at a summer camp, and I'll tell you, she lives in New England. She denied ever being sexually active. Okay. Oops. My, should have my case here with the facial rash. It's definitely not that other case. No. <laughs> definitely not. But for this one. There was a there was a series of series of there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So here she is. Um, she's got you can see um, one centimeter hyperpigmented macules with central sparing, almost having a little bit of an umbilicated look, if you can see the one on her left cheek. Um, extending to her trunk, she's got a few spots scattered on her arms and no palm and sole involvement. Before we go forward, um, any dermatologically inclined panelists want to comment on this? Yeah, I would say that anything that you present has to be a sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that we all know that any rash can be syphilis, but other than that, I have no information. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you well, very it's much. It's not measles. It does not look It's like not measles. measles, so he really doesn't care. And it's not hepatitis. Boy. All right. Okay. Any questions you want to ask? She's never been sexually active, though. And, and her mom was in the room when she said that? It's an excellent question. Okay. Um, are there anything, so, okay, you're thinking syphilis, anything else that you might want to sort of just mention with that? Does it look like a syphilis rash to you? What, what does a syphilis rash look like usually? Palms and soles for Mac, sure. Mac, but it look like okay. a lot of things. Nothing on her palms or soles. Yeah. Okay. But it, it could look like other things too. Okay. Okay. It doesn't and look like molluscum. I think you said it had umbilication. Did you mention that word? So that, that one on her, below her left eye, so on the right side of the slide as I look at it, did have sort of a, a circular mac central sparing with the outer ring, a little bit of tiny rays, not much, but tiny so rays. So they're like so. target lesions a little bit, or? Okay, well let's, let's have people, here's a closer view of some subtle ones on the cheek, and you can see down at around five o'clock, slightly, slightly raised, a uh, little bit of a appearance there. Okay, so let's let's um, ask y'all what you think it is. So I know everybody's now what they're going to say because Henry basically expressed his opinion. Um, so I think there are a few where, let's leave this open for a little bit, and you can go ahead and vote. But I just want to throw out a few things. Uh, Pityriasis rosea, uh, T. pallidum, tinea corporis, discoid lupus, which is what she was treated for by her primary care physician, okay? Mm -hmm. 
um, and eczema. The one that I was, any other differential you would want to throw out there? Um, the other one I would think of is, it doesn't look like molluscum contagiosum, but certainly very common uh, in kids in particular, right, just as a contact. Um, anything else? She's um, not immunosuppressed. She's not immunosuppressed. Crypto makes no right. sense. Crypto is a great yeah. one to think about, yeah. remember, as an umbilicated yeah. lesion, but yeah. completely not yeah. likely in this case, okay? All right? So, does, all right, we'll go ahead. Like acute oh, hang on HIV either. I mean, HIV? I mean, acute, in fact. Acute HIV, it yeah. Like it doesn't look like an acute viral exanthem, no. but, you know, always, always good to think about. Yeah. Okay, so there are some, um, some, um, mycologic holdouts, thank you, people who voted for tinea corporis um, and pityriasis rosea, but most people thought this was T. pallidum, even though she said she was not sexually active. So what, what happened to this case? So um, I want to point out that um, if, you are, if you read the New England Journal of Medicine and you read the CPCs, the Clinical Pathologic Conferences, I would say every year or two there's a case of syphilis that is so blindingly obvi obvious syphilis to people who think about syphilis that you can't believe that they actually went to biopsy. It's like apparently if you're at Mass General you have to get a biopsy to diagnose syphilis because you're not thinking about it. It's just, so most recently there was a case and you could read on the title as soon as you read the case it was like, oh my gosh, that person has syphilis, I'm sure of it. Another one was a tongue biopsy that had an oral um, mucus patch that was diagnosed by biopsy. So my point here is that this is a young woman who should have had her syphilis diagnosed serologically, but actually went to biopsy of her axillary lesion um, to get performed. And she was sent home with a diagnosis of possible discoid lupus a week later. Later, the path results were received, and it prompted her to be recalled to care. Indeed, the biopsy did reveal T. pallidum on the Worth and Starry Silver Stain. There's a newer stain that actually is better, but this is just so beautiful, I thought that you needed to see it. Um, and it's actually a dark field. Um, and of course, her serology was positive, 1 to 64. It was confirmed with the TPPA. And unfortunately, she was also acutely HIV infected. Not acutely, but she was HIV infected. So she had acquired sort of the syphilis HIV through uh, sexual contact um, that she had been sexually active with uh, this boyfriend, her boyfriend, for about six months. So, um, and that history was obtained with the parent in the room. So um, just, again, be aware that we are seeing this. The reason I wanted to show her uh, case was um, not just because I think the rash is pretty interesting and it was completely missed. Again, nobody thought about it. I mean, it's really easy to say it's syphilis when I'm up here talking about STDs, but um, the rashes of syphilis that I've seen, anybody want to say what the most unusual rash of syphilis we've seen? Mine was a vesicular rash because I used to say that the only kind of rash that you don't see in syphilis is vesicular rash, and now we see that. Yeah, so any, I mean, lots of really interesting manifestations, pretty much everything. Um, but the reason I wanted to just show her, these are data you can take a look at on what's going on with men, but in the bottom panel are the data for primary, secondary, and congenital syphilis in women, and unfortunately, in the last um, 10 years, we've seen a marked increase in early syphilis in women, and unfortunately, last year, 2017, I mean, we had almost 1,000 cases of congenital syphilis in the United States, and that is astronomically higher than we've ever seen before. Um, the cases in California, which is where many of them have occurred, um, are strongly linked to complete absence of perinatal care. 
so these women are not getting prenatal care, excuse me, they're not getting screened, and strong links to transactional sex, meth, and heroin. So this is a bit of a disaster, unfortunately, waiting to happen, and it's a good reminder that people don't stay in the sexual boxes that we like to put them in, MSM, women have sex with women, whatever, you know, heterosexual people, there's clearly overlap um, in these sexual networks. So just be aware of this, um, and don't forget we're not just seeing syphilis in men who have sex with men alone. So, um, okay, um, any other comments, questions about that case? Nothing, okay, made, we've, we're good, we made that point. Okay, um, this is a, interesting patient, 45-year-old woman. She um, is diagnosed with HIV with a very low CD4 count, uh, very much like Dr. Soretti's patients, uh, relatively high viral load, 265,000. She starts antiretroviral therapy. She's asymptomatic at the time. She feels well. She's on dolutegravir and uh, TAF FTC. She comes back four weeks after initiating this regimen with painful genital lesions, myalgias, and fevers. She's never had these symptoms before, and she denies a history of genital herpes. She's had one long-term sexual partner. Her last sex was two months ago, and here is what her examination looks like. Okay, so um, this is a real patient also. Okay, everybody got a good look at that. So my question is, what do you think is the most likely cause of her symptoms? A new episode, primary HSV2, a fixed drug eruption from her uh, new antiretroviral regimen or something else you might not know about? Does she have um, iris or immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome due to HSV2? Does she have erosive lichen planus, which can be very severe um, in these patients, or does she have what everybody thinks everybody has on this panel, secondary syphilis? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. As, as Dr. Gulick said, there's the problem. Good. That was real. Yes, I think I got that. Thank you. <sighs> Just blaming all on them. Okay, so um, the majority of you, and I, I'm sure hopefully cued in by um, Dr. Soretti's excellent talk, recognize this as HSV2 iris. Um, panelists, are you not deterred by the fact that she says she's never had an episode of genital herpes? Anybody want to comment on that, Irini? I, I mean, herpes is frequently uh, asymptomatic. A lot of women have. Um, positive PCRs, for example, and they never had a lesion. So it doesn't always, it's not always clinically obvious, and right. a lot of people don't know that they had it. Now, um, I mean, this this could be a presentation of primary, obviously, um, but um, given the timing after ART initiation and the fact that so many people don't know that they uh, are seropositive for, uh, for herpes, I think the most likely uh, answer is the one that people chose as correct. So just a reminder that 90% of people who are seropositive for HSV2, namely they have evidence of prior infection, about nine in 10 will say they had no idea that they were infected. Now, if you educate them and say, you know, it's not always that obvious, you can have quote unquote recurrent yeast infections, quote unquote, I got it caught in my zipper every once in a while, I've heard that a lot, 
those tend to be actually uh, recurrent herpes events. So you can educate people to recognize what they might have dismissed as um, episodes of genital herpes. So let's just talk a little bit about this. Um, so just some key points, and you've heard um, a lot of this already from Marini. Um, you can see this six, up to six months after antiretroviral therapy initiation. You know, herpes is a little bit unusual. Um, it doesn't really respect some of the time boundaries that, that I think we typically think about. So don't be afraid to think about it even a little bit later than we might, even though we know iris, as we heard, can span uh, more time. Um, it's often more severe than recurrences uh, with local and systemic symptoms. I already mentioned that third bullet. Um, and there are some people, and Irina, I'd be interested in your approach, that um, who will actually, um, if, if the patient says, I have a history of, of herpes outbreaks, initiate suppressive therapy while you're starting antiretroviral therapy. Any downside to that makes sense. What did you think about the data at Croy that showed valacyclovir actually, uh, I should have brought the abstract, showed it. There was an abstract that looked at valacyclovir, was associated with some positive benefit in HIV-infected patients? I can't remember what it was. Yes, an inflammation. What did you think? Do you remember that? Was that for valacyclovir? I thought it was I thought it was valacyclovir, but I could be completely wrong. I remember the valacyclovir. Just a couple of comments about HSV2 serology. How many people order HSV2 serology from their patients? Nobody, a few people. For research. For research, okay. So, you know, you can go to STD clinics, you can go to your primary care provider and um, ask for it. Um, we actually offer it in our, our STD clinic for about $30. Um, most people are not using type-specific serology. That's the real problem. So, um, serology to be appropriate, type-specific, meaning you can tell one from two, um, has to be glycoprotein G uh, type-specific. And if you get, for example, an IgM result on herpes, you're not getting a type-specific serology. There is no accurate IgM um, antibody for herpes. So that's, that's a real problem. It means you can't tell one from two. Why would you care if you wanted to tell somebody that they had one versus two? Anyone? Somebody comes into your clinic, pregnant women get screened all the time. Um, they have, they have, they're positive for one, they're not positive for two. So the answer is because almost everybody gets one eventually, and if you get it generally, genitally, it's generally not associated with recurrences. So it's a much happier counseling session, um, and it's not infectious after you kind of get over that first bout. If you have two, right, you're gonna, on average, in the absence of suppressive therapy, probably recur about three times, uh, sometimes about two times in the first year, and then again, eventually, most people will recur. The problem is you're infectious for life. Okay, you're, you, you're subclinically shedding at unpredictable times genitally, and you are going to be one of the majority of people who transmit herpes through subclinical shedding. So that's the real challenge, um, trying to counsel people who are HSV2 seropositive. So that's a whole other topic that we might want to talk about later. The OI guidelines um, in HIV care um, do um, mention a little bit about herpes, although there are, um, I would say, uh, a lot of varying practices about whether people should test for it with serology. Um, they mention just the issue of increased risk of HSV2 shedding and genital ulcer disease um, in the first six months um, um, in, in, this, in this setting. And so you can actually think about suppressive acyclovir if you are um, seeing patients who are um, in, that, in that category. 
Um, Henry, any comments from your perspective on this? That's the only thing that's new. Otherwise, people are talking about how, you know, the, the guidelines talk about how safe and effective suppressive therapy is for clinical management. No, I think, that, I think that's the issue, but, you know, clearly the difference between HSV-1 and 2 is an important issue in terms mm -hmm. of counseling, so mm -hmm. that's an important takeaway. Okay. Uh, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, I should mention, recommends explicitly against routine screening for HSV-2 serology because they say that it's associated with unnecessary harm, mostly the emotional um, and stressful aspects of learning that you have HSV-2 in the absence of an effective intervention. So um, just be aware of that. Uh, that. That said, people are uh, certainly getting it. So we have a couple minutes left. Do you want me to keep going on the cases or? Okay, so I just, I'll just show you these. I don't know that we, well, maybe we should make you vote just because I know you're getting restless. Um, these are two cases and I'll ask you the same question about both. 47-year-old man complaining of painful lesions on his penis for two weeks. He's had one male partner in the past three months. He's had oral sex and insertive anal sex. He's never had an STI, he doesn't use injection drugs, and his last HIV test was negative two years ago. That is what his penis looks like, not very attractive. Uh, 2.5 centimeter round superficial ulceration on his shaft, no lymphadenopathy, and his HIV test is now reactive. So he's a newly diagnosed person. The second person is a 24-year-old man who complained of initially non-painful penile lesions for one month. They have gradually become more uncomfortable. He denies um, new female partners, sex with men, or IDU, no history of STI, and his last HIV test was four months ago, and it was negative. And this is what his looks like, okay? Um, when you look at the other side, he's got a very a large, partly confluent superficial erosion that spans the sulcus um, and goes on to the uh, corona and the shaft that was uh, painful to touch. So let's ask you a question, and I'm just going to tell you that these are due to the same thing. What would you do? Treat for primary syphilis, treat for genital herpes, treat for syphilis and herpes, provide non-steroidals and await test results. So they're in your clinic. You don't have any rapid tests, and that's a huge problem with STDs, right? We got no point of care tests that we can rely on, really. Um, and you saw what those ulcers looked like, and we'll come back and look at them because there are a couple of uh, characteristics I might like to point out to you. And I know you want to see them again. <laughs> Crack that whip. <laughs> okay, people really are into this one. Everybody voted. So this is great because I, I love the divergent opinion. Um, fascinating that some people wanted to treat just for one or the other. Clearly the differential here is syphilis and herpes. And what I want you to take away from this is that even though this lesion in particular looks like a classic chancre, okay? It really looks like syphilis, primary syphilis. Why do I say that? Um, it's got a very clean base, it's circular, it's indurated, it's got that sort of nice uh, erythematous uh, border there. And this was actually not painful, right? That lesion on the side of his penis was painful. He could have had both, really lucky. Um, just because it has a classic appearance does not mean you can tell what it is, okay, on exam. So you really can't, for genital ulcer disease, tell syphilis from herpes. 
Both of these men had herpes, actually, in this case. So um, the answer here is to treat them for both. Um, so that, that's a really, really important point, and I'm glad that most of you wanted to do that. Um, the good news is that you would have the diagnosis ultimately, although the problem with not treating for primary syphilis here, if this was syphilis, what is the problem? Any of the panelists want to say? That, their RPR may be non-reactive and you may never see them again. So yeah, the, uh, how often is the RPR or the EIA non-reactive in the setting of a chancre? Want to take a hazard, hazard a guess, anyone? Uh, 30%. 30%, very good. See, you love syphilis. Why are you saying you don't like it? You're good. 30%, so even with, so, and why is that? Because you just haven't had time to make antibodies, okay? So 30%, all right. James, you also want to say something about, we always talk about painless and painful ulcers, and that always is a nice dichotomy in a textbook, but right. how often can you rely on that? Not at all, I would say. I mean, if the only thing that's helpful in making a specific diagnosis of a cause of an ulcer is vesicles. So if you see classic dewdrops on a rose petal kind of thing, which is really uh, the description that was used more for varicella, um, but if you see that, then, you know, and it's almost always on the shaft, you almost never see it in women because by the time women come to you with those complaints, the apposition of the labia, the vulva, et cetera, has just simply um, eroded the vesicle. So you often just see superficial ulcerations. I think Mike. what we might do, just do that next case because I think that's kind of an important one. Do the next case? The, and then we'll move on, yeah. Okay, this one? Uh, this is the this is the vexing persistent no serology no let's go to the uh, the ocular oh let's go oh that's a good one um, yeah. the you want me, I can go forward yeah thank you very yeah. good Roxy thanks perfect see now you're a syphilis expert too um, doesn't take much. Um, okay, this is a great question, I think. 38-year-old man with blurry vision. Uh, he has well-controlled HIV. CD4 count is 488. However, he's had a week or so of increasingly blurry vision in his right eye. How many people have seen a case like this recently? Um, I bet you have. You may not know it yet. No other complaints. One primary male partner, he's also HIV infected. They occasionally have outside male partners. He's had rectal chlamydia, sorry, rectal gonorrhea in the past. Um, he had a negative syphilis EIA screening test six months ago. Uh, he has a normal uh, neuro exam. Um, and his ophthalmologic exam is unrevealing, but you don't, di you can't dilate its pupils. You're just trying to look in there and you can't really see anything. However, because you've been to this course and you're savvy, you're concerned about ocular syphilis, okay? So please be aware and we'll come to this data in a second. So you initiate presumptive treatment for neurosyphilis with IV penicillin and we'll talk about that's how you treat it and you refer him immediately to ophthalmology to take a look in, in his eyes. My question is, assuming it's feasible, would you perform a lumbar puncture? So you, this is a man with a CD4 of 200, I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken, um, who comes in, you think it's neurosyphilis, I'm sorry, you think it's ocular syphilis, you've already initiated penicillin, um, would you get a lumbar puncture? He has no headache, he has no other symptoms except for his blurry vision. All I remember is a vacation from the Go-Go's. Okay. Wow. You guys are aggressive. 
Awesome. Mm -hmm. 74%. Mike, do you want to comment on this? Because you wanted us to do this. Well, all right. So ocular syphilis uh, is viewed, you're going to treat it as if it were neurologic syphilis. Um, the ophthalmologic exam is paramount. I, I don't know that I would change anything that I would do based on an LP because you're going to treat anyway. Uh, I guess you could argue that you could confirm a diagnosis if you don't have an ophthalmologist nearby. Maybe you'll see cells, but the negative neurologic exam, I, I, and you're going to treat it anyway, I would lean towards not doing that personally. And ju just to be argumentative, I guess I'd like to see the uh, CSF titer and see it going down and seeing the protein and the plesiotosis disappear. But I guess I'd wait for Jeannie uh, to tell us how often that really occurs that you have a failure. Okay. Um, other comments from the panelists? And syphilis can cause a whole uveitis, so I think it can affect any structure from the front to the back of the eye. So we always say the eyes are part of the nervous system, but in this guy, we didn't, haven't really heard what the ophthalmologist thought. So I would sort of lean towards doing it too. So when we did it, it was completely normal. <laughs> I'm sorry. So when we, when we had a case of uh, uveitis and we did the we did an LP, we did not find anything in the CSF. Okay. So it was actually completely negative. So let me let me say he goes to the ophthalmologist and there is evidence of retinitis and it looks consistent with syphilis. Would that change anybody's intent? How many people would switch from doing the LP to saying, "Well, we know what it is now. We don't need to do it." Anybody feel that way? You guys wanted to do it, a lot of you, Three, 74%. You're not deterred. I see uh, you're Jenny, steadfast. In terms of what the ophthalmologist tells you, mm -hmm. is any kind of ocular syphilis, neurosyphilis, or for instance, if you get anterior uveitis, is that also neurosyphilis? Okay. Let's cover that. And let me just tell you about a patient. I was on inpatient consults last week. I saw a young man from rural Alabama. He had been um, complaining of red eye and gradually decreased vision loss because he couldn't drive. Um, he realized he was going to get into an accident, and so he decided he should go get checked out. He had incredible panuveitis, incredible syphilis rash, and alopecia areata. He was losing his hair. So uh, his syphilis titer was 1 to um, 1,024. So um, this is a pretty uh, representative case. So let's talk about ocular syphilis, and I'll give you a couple more recent references too. But this MMWR, I think, remains a great resource. Um, it covered about 400 cases. This was in late 2016. And it's funny, I presented with Gail Bullen at ID Week uh, session on um, STDs, and we weren't really expecting it, but when we asked the um, 120 or so ID physicians in the audience if anybody had seen a case of ocular syphilis, almost half of them raised their hands. So this has taken off really quickly. I mean, we were not talking about this like even six or seven years ago. Um, in this review, most were um, men who have sex with men with HIV, but there were some among HIV uninfected people, and there were some among um, heterosexual men and women. Several resulted in significant sequelae, including blindness. The reason you can't leisurely um, treat this is because the retina is involved, as I'll show you, in a significant proportion, and people go blind because of retinal hemorrhage um, and retinal detachment. So that's, that's really the problem. On the other hand, if you treat it, you can reverse blindness or incipient blindness really great, in a really great way. I've seen a couple of people do very well. And of course, these are reportable. This is just showing you geographically it was pretty much all over the United States. Um, and then the demographic characteristics I always me already mentioned. But 
what I would like you to just pay attention to are the stages of syphilis. About 26% of these cases were secondary syphilis, about 20% were late or were early latent, and then almost half were late latent or syphilis of unknown duration. So the first thing is that this can occur during any time of syphilis. So people think it's um, manifestation of disseminated infection, uh, but it, and it is, it's, it is very much neurosyphilis. It got there through the optic nerve into the retina, so it is neurosyphilis, but you can see it during any stage, okay? Um, the symptoms are blurry vision in 60%, so please, if your patient says, my vision's blurry, I'm not really seeing as well, I'm driving into trees at night, like my patient said, um, please think about that. But he also, interestingly enough, had conjunctivitis um, about a month before in the setting of an epidemic of red eye in his family, so he dismissed that. Um, but so think about that, eye pain, red eye, uh, vision loss, and then in this series, um, uveitis, Henry, to your point, um, was present in almost half. Retinitis was present in 13%, optic neuritis in 11 um, And 50% of these people had a CSF analysis performed. How many of those were um, abnormal? Uh, you can see um, down there, they looked specifically at CSF VDRL, and that was reactive in the majority, 70%. Um, they didn't talk about the prevalence of just plain old pleocytosis um, on this chart, but as if you looked, it was similar. It was about 70%. So the majority had, but they didn't all. The, the real question is why should you do an LP when you're going to treat this as neurosyphilis anyway, right? And remember that treatment is with parenteral penicillin. The reason that CDC gives is exactly Henry's point, that you want to follow the response to treatment by repeating the LP at six months. The argument against that is that we know very well that if you follow serologies and they resolve, um, that parallels response in the CSF in syphilitic meningitis beautifully. So purists would say yes, do an LP. The CDC says yes, do an LP. I'm more along the lines of Dr. Sag, I don't necessarily do the LP if I know what are, it is. We are unpure. We are unpure. Yes, yes. That's well. We already knew that. But um, so, so that's the debate. So I think you're not wrong at all doing one, and especially if you think there's something else going on. Absolutely, you should. Um, just a couple of uh, mentions, some really nice, very recent papers. Um, the one uh, on the, on the left-hand side is a paper uh, reporting um, a bunch of cases um, in North Carolina, 109 um, with ocular syphilis, and really bore out what the MMWR showed. And just also to remind you that as we see more syphilis, we're going to see more quote-unquote unusual presentations. And remember syphilitic hepatitis. Um, is something that you might see in secondary syphilis. The classic signs of it are an increased alkaline phosphatase in the setting of normal transaminases, and a nice review just published um, from Denmark in, in HIV. So um, those, are, that's what I, those are the points I wanted to make about ocular syphilis. Just in general, we still have some debates about you know, lumbar puncture in syphilis um, in the setting of HIV. Um, and there, you will still find a lot of debate about this, and I think um, there are some arguments in favor and against it, uh, as I note here, but I would say that most people are probably leaning against routinely doing LPs um, in the setting of syphilis and HIV. So uh, we'll stop there, is that okay? All right, Perfect. all right, thank you so much. I've got a bunch of questions, and I yep. don't know.